At first glance, the story of Jesus healing two blind men seems a little out of place. Why is it even there? What was Matthew's intent? What purpose does it serve? Could there be something more than just two blind men seeing? Well, let's see. Hi, this is Hanson from Archipus Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of saints that we may know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace the things of His kingdom that we may receive and move on kingdom assignments according to His kingdom ways. Will you join me? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for scriptures, but we thank you even more for the living word, Jesus, our King. And we thank you for Holy Spirit that will lead us and teach us as we learn together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage today is Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. Let's read the text and see what it reveals. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. In this account, two blind men get to see. The two see. While at the same time, the Lord opened my own eyes to see too. But more precisely, to see twos. While I was preparing for this teaching, I noticed quite a few twos, pairs, double mentions in this passage. While some are more obvious, others not quite as obvious. Hence the title of this teaching, a combination of these two points, that the two see, and we begin to see twos. Two see twos. Well, for us to have a better understanding of what the twos are all about, we must consider the biblical significance of the number two. Depending on how and where it is used, the number two can denote a comparison or a unity, uh, two things or people or concepts coming together. There's agreement, there's partnership, there's testimony, there's a witness. On the other hand, the second understanding is that can be contrast or division. Two standing apart, uh, extremes, opposites, a right perhaps versus a wrong. Let's keep these in mind as we see and explore the twos in this teaching. Two accounts, two issues, two declarations, two reactions, two questions, two outcomes, two followings. Let's jump right in so that you can see the twos too. Did you know that in Matthew's Gospel, there are two accounts of two blind men healed by Jesus? One we find in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34, and of course the other is our text today. 
So an alternative title could well have been Two Blind Men, Part 2, The Sequel. Now, why did Matthew provide two accounts? Well, in those days, it's not uncommon to find blind men throughout Israel, so very possibly there might have been numerous healings. Well, from these accounts, we see that there are many similar points, but with some variations. So, same, same, but different. Yet, we must ask, are these same accounts or are they different ones? And if they are the same, why did Matthew repeat himself? And this is where context is helpful because the author would arrange material accordingly to make and support his point. Let's consider the first account in Matthew chapter 9, two blind men. We see in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, it was about the king's declaration of the precepts of the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom. Following that, we see Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Now, these are narratives. After the declaration, it will be the demonstration of the power of the kingdom. Now, this first account is a part of a series of miracles that demonstrated this power. We see the woman healed of the issue of blood, girl raised from the dead. Then the two blind men receive sight, and then a demon-possessed mute set free. So we understand the key focus. It was about the king and his kingdom, but not only that, it was to encourage faith from the people and of the people in this king and in his kingdom. Now, what about Matthew chapter 20, 29 to 34? Two blind men, part two, the sequel. Well, we've been going through Matthew chapters 18, 19, and 20. Now, Matthew 18, as you know, is the fourth kingdom discourse out of five. It's about kingdom relationships. Now, what follows again in 19 and 20, now these are narratives after the discourse. And as we've seen, these serve to further emphasize the point of Matthew chapter 18, the kingdom trait of humility. And specifically, how does it play out in relationships, in marriages, in service and ministry, in leadership, what is the right kingdom way to kingdom greatness? So why is this account then placed here? Why do we have a miracle out of nowhere? Well, I believe it concludes Jesus' teaching on humility and lowliness and about serving others. After all the talk and the teaching about understanding kingdom greatness and the right way to manage relationships, this was a very practical application and a very, very stark object lesson. Now, what better subjects than to use than two blind men, right? They were lowly, they were the least, they were the last, considered unworthy, probably discarded, useless in the eyes of the world, and Jesus heals them. So we see a key focus here where the first account focused a little bit more about the faith of the people. Here, it was to emphasize the humility and the service of the king and his kingdom. And it would do us well for us to remember this in the entire context of Matthew 18, 19, and 20, even as we continue to discover and explore the other tools. Now we are ready to consider another tool. This time, it will be two issues, or can I say two textual issues, that we encounter often whenever we consider this story of the two blind men. 
So let's get to the first issue, and it is about the two blind men, or is it one? In both accounts, Matthew mentions two blind men. But in the synoptic gospels of Mark and Luke, only one is mentioned. Now, some have been very troubled or stumbled by this seeming inconsistency or contradiction in the scriptures. Well, there's no contradiction or error. Well, this can be easily resolved. Whilst Matthew focused on two, Mark and Luke only looked at the one who was more prominent of the two. In fact, Mark himself provides the name of the more prominent. His name is Bartimaeus. And of course, his friend might be there with him. And Matthew singles out, points out two of them. And Matthew had good reason to mention two blind men. Firstly, let's remember that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. His main intent was to establish Jesus as the Messiah. And to make his point clear, Matthew follows the Old Testament protocol, the law, and he provides two to serve as witnesses. According to the law, there must be a minimum of two witnesses to establish a testimony. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Now, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so whether is it to confirm a sin, a wrongdoing, or to confirm a case or something that is of importance, the minimum number is two. And that's what Matthew did. Notice that Matthew did exactly the same thing in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when he reported about the demon-possessed men, two of them, in the Gadarenes. Notice that Mark and Luke also only reported one. So you can see that this is a Matthewan technique to speak to the Jews in the language that they understand that he also keeps to the requirements of the law. Now, if this sounds familiar, this is because we have just explored it in our previous teaching. Jesus just mentioned the same principle in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, when he taught about resolving conflicts in kingdom relationships. Two witnesses minimum to make this case or to establish a cause. So any issue here? Not at all. Matthew highlighted two for the sake of his audience in keeping with Old Testament understanding and law. Let's look at issue number two, and this concerns a place called Jericho. Let's look at the geographical context as we trace the ministry and his route of Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had been with his disciples way up in Caesarea Philippi. He comes down to Galilee, which is really his ministry home base. But he starts to move south, and he goes through this region called Perea, moving towards Jerusalem. Now, along the way, if you remember, there were three predictions about his death as well as his resurrection. But he spoke much about the coming kingdom and how he will be glorified in his kingdom. So as he moves towards Jerusalem, this is important because this is the capital city. And for many, this is seen as the kingdom headquarters. This is the kingdom big deal. Very, very key. 
So this account is placed right there as a final story before entering Jerusalem, and it's set in Jericho. Now, Jericho was uh, near the west bank of the Jordan, about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. If you remember the Old Testament story, Joshua took Jericho as a foothold into the Promised Land. Now, what's the Hebrew name of Joshua? Yehoshua. And Jesus now goes through Jericho as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Hebrew name? Yeshua. It's a wonderful parable if you just understand the significance. But as we look at this place called Jericho, is this account accurate and is it credible? Is there another textual problem? Because Matthew records that they went out of Jericho and then a miracle happens. Mark records the same. Jesus was leaving Jericho. But Luke, in the Synoptic Gospel, records Jesus as coming near Jericho. Jesus was approaching Jericho uh, before he performed this miracle. So was he leaving or was he approaching? Now, is that a textual problem again? And some, again, have really found a lot of challenge trying to understand this. Well, there is a problem if you only see one Jericho. But there's no problem if you see and understand that there are two Jerichos. See, there was a new Jericho and it was built by Herod. Now, this is about a mile south of the old or the ancient Jericho that we're more used to. Well, Jesus was leaving old Jericho, recorded by both Matthew and Mark, and the old Jericho would have been significant to the Jews. And he was moving towards the new Jericho, and that's recorded by Luke, and he writes to a Gentile audience. And the miracle took place between the old Jericho and the new Jericho. Can you see how pivotal and how strategic Jericho is? Jesus was moving from the old and to the new. Did you get that? Is a transition from the old to the new as Jesus moved to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. So is there an issue here? Not really, if we consider the context correctly. So two issues with the blind men, two blind men, no problem. Another issue, two Jerichos, no problem at all. I hope you're enjoying the tools so far. Are you seeing it too? Now that we've addressed these textual issues, let's go on and we can look at the text proper. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we notice two declarations. Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And again, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Note that there are two key points in each of these declarations. The first is mercy. The two blind men were crying out for mercy. And this is not just have pity, look at us, we are so poor thing. No. But they were crying out for compassion, for someone to act decisively. This was an appeal to authority for action. They were appealing to a person or an office. Lord, this office or person must have the jurisdiction and the power to act. Yet it wasn't just Lord, any official or any person in high office, but the son of David. So if the first point was about mercy, the second is about Messiah. Son of David was a messianic title. Now, Matthew is very deliberate. 
he started his gospel with this exact same title. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David. He wanted to position Jesus as the line of David because the Jews understand Messiah will come from this line. And how ironic is it not that it would take blind men to see this so clearly, crying out for mercy from the Messiah. Two points in these declarations. Let's look at the two declarations now. First, we see that they heard and they believed. Well, for one, they heard that Jesus, the Messiah, was passing by. But what else did they hear? We are told that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. I believe that their hearing was so keen and so sensitive because they couldn't see in the physical. Everything that they learned must be by hearing. They must have heard about the messianic promise. They would have heard that the Messiah would be able to heal the blind, the deaf, and the dumb. Look at Isaiah 29 verse 18. Isaiah 35 verse 5 and 6. Psalm 146 verse 8. All speak of the Messiah giving sight to the blind. And so they hear this over and over and over again. And they heard, Messiah is coming. The son of David is just there. I don't know how close he is. Is he next to me or is it 200 meters away? I don't care. We're going to shout. Oh, son of David, oh Lord. They heard and they believed and they proclaimed and they declared. How wonderful, isn't it, that we would hear, believe and speak whatever has been deposited within our hearts. And that was the first, number one, declaration. But look at the second one, number two, the declaration. And if the first one was about them hearing and believing, the second declaration is about them having heard and still believing. Now, what did they hear? The entire crowd, as we would see very soon, told them, shut up, keep quiet. They warned them, they rebuked them, they scolded them. Everyone was telling to shush, shush. That was what they were hearing. What else could they have heard from the crowd? Oh, come on, you're not important enough. You're not worth the king's attention. You're not good enough for the things of the kingdom. And come on, Jesus is on the way to establish his kingdom. Don't distract him from his assignment. Can you imagine? On one hand, you can hear the promises of God, but on the other hand, you can hear so many conflicting voices and doubts that would be placed within your heart. My question for you is this, what are you listening to? Who are you listening to? For these blind men, they heard all those discouraging things, telling them to stop it and not even disturb Jesus but they still believe that Jesus has a place in his heart for them. That the Messiah, perchance, would stop and speak with them. And they still believed and they still declared. And Scripture tells us all the more they cried out to the Messiah. Two declarations. Where are you, my friend? When you start the first one, are you told to stop that you will not even get to the second one? Or will you keep hearing and keep believing that Jesus and his kingdom 
will have time and place for all that have faith in Him and that will cry out and call out to Him. From the two declarations, we now notice two reactions. And they're two very different reactions. One was the contempt of the crowd, and the other would be the compassion of the Christ. If we look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 31, we see that the multitude warned, rebuked would be a stronger word, warned the two blind men, scolded them, and told them that they should be quiet. Stop disturbing Jesus. Stop distracting the things of the kingdom. Don't you know, we're trying to establish kingdom down here, and we're really having a good worship service. Can you not block the revival? Don't spoil the moment. The crowd was contemptuous. They were upset with these lowly ones because they saw Jesus as great, and if they were going to be with this king, let's not stop this great, great revival move. The contempt of the crowd. But this is contrasted with the reaction of Jesus, the compassion of the Christ. And we see that he stops. He stops. And not only that, he calls them. And he asks them a question and they reply. And in verse 34, it says, Jesus had compassion and responded and touched the eyes. How wonderful. Look at this word, compassion. To translate it in literal terms, it actually means to be deeply moved. It speaks of the bowels, something in the gut sort of stirs within you. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. Something clicks within him. Something snaps in him and he is compelled to move because of this compassion. He sees the multitudes, he has compassion. But sadly, notice the contrast. The multitudes did not know how to see others with the same compassion that Jesus saw them and had that compassion. Two reactions. As I prepare this, I ponder this question. Am I the same? Are we the same? I want the compassion of the Christ, but do I fail to extend the same compassion to others? I always want God to be patient and gracious with me. And I know you too. But is it not true that we are often impatient with others because we consider them as unworthy or too sinful or not faithful enough to receive anything from the Lord? But Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving me time. Thank you for understanding me. But for others, we don't feel they deserve the same thing. Instead, we are contemptuous. We view others with contempt. Now, we don't say it, but if we are honest with ourselves, I believe we think it. And we are judgmental. And we're often upset with others when they stand in the way of our blessings or our spiritual experiences or even our kingdom assignments. Two reactions. Which would you react with? Contempt or compassion? From two declarations, we have two reactions, and now we see two questions. Well, you only find one actually in Matthew chapter 20 in our passage, verse 32. Jesus stood still and called them and asked them, What do you want me 
to do for you. Now, where's the other one from then? Well, you've got to back up a little bit. And in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus asked James and John through his mother, remember, what do you wish? What are you asking of me? What do you want for me to do to you? So two very similar questions in a much broader context by Jesus to two pairs of men. To the two disciples, James and John, what do you wish? And to the two blind men, what do you want me to do for you? You notice and have you noticed this, that Jesus loves to ask questions. And it is not that God or Jesus the King doesn't know the answers. But he poses a question so that he can reveal what is really in our hearts. And how we answer will show that very, very clearly. So two questions, but two very different answers. James and John, you know the answer. I want to sit on the left and on the right, you know, put us here and there. They answered from a posture of strength and pride. And I believe theirs was a position that was based on merit. What they were really saying was, we are good and we deserve everything that the kingdom has to offer. So when you come into your kingdom, Lord, don't forget that. Give us the thrones that will be closest to you. We are good. But look at the two blind men as an object lesson, remember? They answered from a posture of weakness and of humility. If James and John, that their position was based on merit, then the two blind men, theirs was a petition based on mercy. We are undeserving. I know we are the lowest, we are the least, we are the nobodies. And we'll just be thankful with whatever you have to offer. I know you can do it, but Lord, we're not going to demand this. We're going to declare what we believe by faith, but we will accept this because it is always by your mercy and according to your grace. Let me ask you, which do you think captures the king's heart and attention? I think you know the answer. Let us not be presumptuous in the way we approach the Lord, because always, always, it is by His grace and according to His great mercy. From the two questions, we saw two answers, and now we will see two outcomes. Well, the outcomes were quite different. One was immediate, and another was pending. For the two blind men, we are told immediately their eyes received sight. Bartimaeus and friend got what they asked for. But not for the two disciples. Theirs was pending, because Jesus explained, what you're asking for, it's not for me to give. You've got to wait for my father to make that decision. So James and John did not get what they asked for. Very different outcomes. But if you consider a different perspective, actually both outcomes were also the same. Now why? Because the two blind men and the two disciples, both pairs, two pairs, had both their eyes opened to see. For the two blind men, they received physical sight, opened eyes physically to see the king. I'm just imagining this. Can you see their excitement to see Jesus, the Messiah, standing before them as their eyes open? 
I want to believe that it was immediate. They just saw one Jesus, not a double vision, seeing two Jesuses and then becoming one. But for the two disciples, they had their eyes open too. But theirs were spiritual eyes. If the blind man had eyes open to see the king and his kingdom, then the two disciples had their eyes open to see the ways of the kingdom. James and John had a clear object lesson. It's not about the powerful, the prestigious. It's not about ordering people around and discarding those that are seemingly less worthy. But it's about being humble, lowly, being a servant and a slave, serving everyone, especially these blind men, the lost, the last, the least, the weak, the poor, the unworthy, the useless, the rejected. And the king would stop and do these for the blind man. The blind guys had their eyes open to see, and I believe so did the two disciples. You see, Jesus enabled the two blind men to see so that the two disciples would see too. And we all need our spiritual eyes open to see the things of the kingdom, the ways and the truths. But we also need to see the right kingdom examples so that we can see clearly and accurately too. No point having all the teaching and having it all in our brains and in our minds and say, yeah, yeah, we understand that we can preach it. How much more powerful if we see it in action, the king and his kingdom manifested right before our very eyes. I hope you're still following and enjoying the tools so far. Well, speaking of following, now we notice two followings in this passage. There are really two groups that we notice that followed Jesus. The account closes in Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, with the two ex-blind men following Jesus. But the account, notice, opened with a great multitude following Jesus too. So they were both following Jesus. Well, it's the same, same, right? But was it also different? What were these followings all about? Let's consider the multitude type of following. You know, in the Gospels, multitudes were often contrasted against the disciples. And this means that there's no real indication that these were disciples at all. In fact, from the accounts, and later on we will understand that many of these would follow with their own ideas of the Messiah, what he should be, could be, and the things of the kingdom. I'm not saying that some did not convert to disciples, finally, I believe they did. But for the large majority, they simply followed the crowd. Was it a hurt mentality? Oh, I heard this, so I just follow. Or was it a hurt mentality that I see, so I just follow and do? Question is, did they know what following Jesus would entail? Or did they merely follow blindly? Contrasted against a multitude type of following, we'll look at the disciple type of following. Now this implies that the two blind men, or can I say the ex-blind men, became disciples of Jesus. Now after their healing, this is not surprising. But we cannot presume that this always happens because we read of other accounts where others are just healed and just, they just move on and just move away. They did not follow. All things considered, this is still a very important decision to be made by these two, to follow Jesus. 
And what it means is that when the eyes are open, when there's an awareness, an awakening, they must come in aligning. And so they lined up with Jesus and they were ready to be assigned even for the things of the kingdom. Following as a disciple would entail receiving and accepting the agenda as well as the assignments of the kingdom. For the two men, the cost of discipleship would kick in immediately. It would apply. It would also mean possible sufferings, rejections, persecution, and even death. See, the multitudes never really understood this, but disciples would understand this fully. And I want to believe that the two men willingly, wholeheartedly said, yes, we are happy to accept all this. So if the multitudes might have followed blindly, we can say that these two ex-blind men followed Jesus with their eyes wide open. How are you following Jesus? That's a good question to consider, isn't it? Because it's very possible to just follow without fully seeing or believing. You know, we can do the church thing, do the Christian thing. We hear, we say, we parrot, hallelujah, Jesus is Lord. How are you really following? Are you following blindly? Because if you claim to see and to believe, then it must result in following Jesus as his disciple. Otherwise, what have you seen? What do you really believe? I say again, don't follow blindly. Ask God to open your eyes to the things and the perspectives of the kingdom. I challenge you, it will totally change the way you follow Jesus. Two see twos. Did you see the twos too? I hope I didn't confuse you with too many twos. But allow me to review the points again as we close. The two accounts help us to determine context, and the focus here is about kingdom humility and service. The two blind men serve as a witness and a testimony that everything about Jesus and his kingdom is true. Two Jerichos, Jesus moving from the old to the new. Similarly, can I challenge you, let's move with the king. Let's discard the old, come into the new. Old wineskins have to be thrown away. Let's put on the new wineskins of the kingdom. Two declarations, the Messiah is merciful and will act accordingly. But as we hear, let us believe, let us declare, let us persist. Let's hold on to all that he has promised to us. Two reactions. Now, would you move with the compassion of the Christ? Please don't move and respond with the content of the crowd. Two questions, and there could even be more, because Jesus poses questions to reveal postures of hearts. And always is based on mercy, His mercy, His grace, how good He is, and never upon merit of how good or how well we think we are. Two outcomes, and I will say outcomes can be very, very different. But one common desired outcome for everyone is that our eyes will be open to see the King for who He is and the kingdom for what it truly is. Two followings. Don't follow blindly. Follow Jesus wholeheartedly with your eyes wide open. I hope you enjoyed the twos. But let me bring back the significance of the number two. Remember that for one, it is about comparison. And we could say a reference point. 
a unity so that as we line up with the right reference point, we become as one in our terms. Let's get aligned with Jesus. But it can speak also of contrast and division. And that could be a misalignment. And the Lord could be showing us this is what you should be doing and this is what you should not be doing or the way that you live the things of the kingdom. Well, friends, we want to be aligned with Jesus and also with one another. And let me summarize with one very, very simple statement in this lesson of twos. Where kingdom perspectives are concerned, what Jesus sees, we are to see too. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you will open our eyes, Lord, as you did for the blind men, as well as for the disciples. Lord, what you see, how you see, we want to see in the same way. And so, Lord, open our eyes that we will follow you, not blindly, but with our eyes wide open, understanding the implications and what it means to love you and how it means also to serve your people in the same way as you would serve us all. And so we thank you for this, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you. Mm -hmm.